The South African Jewish Board of Deputies is the organization that engages with the South African government on behalf of the Jewish community. Join Sharice Zephard for the next hour to find out what the SAJBD has been up to. 101.9 High FM. And welcome to Jewish Board Talk. I'm Sharice Zephard from the Jewish Board of Deputies and I look forward to being in your company for the next hour. These are difficult times for all of us. The tragic situation in the Middle East continues. Many of us are confronted with the hatred that we see by those who seemingly support Hamas and the hatred they spew. And I don't know how you find it, but I'm, I find it a bit puzzling that people can come, you openly come out and support it. So, which is not to say that we don't obviously express sympathy for all lives lost. I have only one guest today, and that is Dr. David Hirsch, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and co-founder of Engage, a campaign against the boycott movement. He has also started and is the CEO of the London Centre for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. I caught up with him earlier in the week, and we chatted about some of the things I mentioned above. So it's going to be one interview. We're going to play it whole, but... This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. And my only guest today is Dr. David Hirsch, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London. He is also the co-founder of Engage, a campaign against the boycott movement, as well as being the Director and CEO of the London Centre for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism. Dr. Hirsch, we know that Hamas's values are the antithesis to the values of human life and liberal values that we hold. Yet, so many have chosen Hamas. I mean, we're seeing an outpouring of lefties going out in support of Hamas. Can you explain why that's the case? Well, I think the support that we see for Hamas is generally um, not explicit. It's generally hidden under um, an appearance of support for the Palestinians or for Palestinian rights. Um, so we might often look at what people are saying and uh, what they're doing, and we might say that in this context, uh, that particular image or that particular banner or that particular song um, indeed supports Hamas. Um but it's often not stated explicitly. Um, it's You're right, of course, Hamas was formed um, in the 80s to sabotage the peace process between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, the PLO, headed by Yasser Arafat. And the way that they attempted to sabotage the peace process was by killing people. And they hoped that if they killed enough Israelis, then Israeli public opinion would swing against uh, a peace agreement. Um, and it was not an entirely unsuccessful strategy. Um, this is uh, stated explicitly in their founding document, which said that uh, so-called peace processes were um, contrary or were violations of the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. So the other thing that's stated in the founding document of Hamas is uh, a very clear and explicit Nazi-style anti-Semitism. So uh, when we're thinking about Hamas, we have to keep those two things in mind. Um, they might not be 
the only things <laughs> that explain who Hamas is and what they do. But if we forget those things also, then we're making a proper mistake. Um, Dr. Hirsch, we've seen protesters, especially on campuses, come out throughout the world, okay, throughout the diaspora. People who come out from the river to the sea, they're chanting. They have, including here in Johannesburg, come to our offices and torn down posters of babies that have been kidnapped. Okay. What do they, in their minds, think they are supporting? So the song, uh, the song from the river to the sea, again, is, is ambiguous and it's kind of constructed to be ambiguous. Um, uh, because who could possibly object to um, uh, freedom from the river to the sea and indeed for everywhere. But uh, we think, that, well, when I say we, I'm not sure who I mean. I think that uh, the ambiguity means that uh, uh, from the river to the sea means that there's no distinction made between Israel and the Palestinian territories or the occupied territories um, and Gaza. Um, and if there's no distinction, then people worry that freedom from the river to the sea actually means the dismantling of Israel. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that that's what it means. And nobody believes that the dismantling of Israel could lead to freedom <laughs> from the river to the sea, uh, in particular for Israelis. And if they ever believe that, they can't possibly believe that um, since 7th of October. Um, Dr. Hirsch, let me rephrase my question. Okay. When the images came out on the 7th of October, I felt horrified. And I'm not sure I felt horrified only as a Jew. I felt horrified as a human being that others could behave in such a barbaric manner towards men, women, children, elderly. It, it was indiscriminate. It was barbaric. Okay, those images for me were extremely barbaric. And the fact that they were taken by the perpetrators themselves made it more so, right? Why can, why do I feel like others are not feeling as horrified as I was? Um, well, I think you're right to feel that. I think that, um, many of the statements that came out, um, uh, in support of, quote, the Palestinians. And, you know, let's be clear, the, of, you know, again, who could possibly be against rights for Palestinians, right? Nobody, I think. But there's an ambiguity hidden in all of this discussion, which is very important. Um, the statements that were ostensibly uh, published for the rights of Palestinians, um, mentioned in very lurid terms um, Palestinian suffering. Um, but there was no mention of the uh, um, the killing um, in Israel on the 7th of October. There has to be a distinction between deliberate, cold-blooded killing and targeting of uh, people who are living in their houses civilians um for murder for rape and for kidnapping and all of these were organized none of it was private enterprise the cruelty was organized and i think the evidence is clear about that there has to be a distinction between that 
and people who die in conflict. Um, and what is the distinction? Every death is a tragedy and every death, every the, the, the indescribable pain of the way that people die is tragic. But, um, I, I mean, I find it difficult to say this because I'm, you know, I'm kind of constructed on, in a British university where one cannot say things like this, right? Where one cannot say that you have to make a distinction between um, deliberate murder on the one hand and uh, people who die in conflict on the other. Uh, as you see, I kind of had to push it out of myself because I know that, that I'm not supposed to make that distinction because anybody would just kind of roll their eyes and, and, and think that they had won a victory if one makes a distinction. But the distinction between um, uh, murdering and torturing and raping civilians deliberately and, uh, uh, you know, people getting hit in war, the distinction is important. It's at the centre of international law. It's at the centre of any morality and it's at the centre of any politics. And let's be clearer about this, that the people who are, the, the Palestinian people who are dying in Gaza as a result of this conflict um, are, again, I have to push it out of myself because I know I'm not allowed to say this, they are being used as human shields. The Hamas in Gaza have, uh, whatever the figure is, 220, 240 Israeli hostages, but they have 2 million Palestinian hostages. And no one is discussing this. So it's true that Hamas positions its leadership and its hardware and its combatants in civilian areas. It's true that they have put them in hospitals. Hospitals, and it's true that they have put them in schools. And if we don't face those truths about what Hamas is and how it operates, we cannot have a proper discussion. So um, um, it's not just collateral damage, right? If somebody is saying, Jeremy Corbyn yesterday, for example, tweeted um, about the horror of the suffering of innocent Palestinians and Again, in context, what he was demanding, well, not in context, but explicitly what he was demanding was um, a ceasefire, a stop to the uh, uh, violence. And, and therefore, what he was demanding was that we acquiesce to the Hamas taking of hostages, the Hamas taking of two million Palestinian hostages, and Corbyn looks at the situation and he says the cost of going for Hamas is too high because too many people will get hurt. Now, you know, in the abstract, I'm quite sympathetic to that argument, right? It's an appalling situation and the cost of going for Hamas is too high. But um, what are the other options? And the the options are kind of obvious. The option, I mean... Israel has a practice of uh, asking um, civilians to leave a battlefield before they attack it, which, of course, makes their job harder and makes the job of the people they are attacking easier. But it's done for humanitarian reasons. And when it's done, it's heralded as a kind of an outrage in itself, uh, you know, to, to move masses of, of, of people here and there. What's the alternative to that is to not issue uh, warnings. 
what's the alternative to engaging Hamas is not engaging Hamas, is leading them in place. And too many Israelis, I think to the overwhelming majority of Israelis who have experienced and who take seriously what happened on the 7th of October. And that's why uh, it is trivialized by everyone who is only focused on uh, the people who are um, dying in the current conflict. It's trivialized because if you take it seriously, you have to understand that Israel thinks that it needs to prevent it from happening again. And it cannot be prevented from happening again while Hamas are in power, while they are made immune by the two million Palestinian hostages who it holds, while it is supplied. I mean, people talk about a siege of Gaza, but how did 5,000 Iranian missiles get into Gaza? How did enough weapons and arms get into Gaza to attack and invade half of southern Israel? Um, so, So most Israelis think that it's not uh, an option to allow that to even possibly happen again. So it's not an option to go and engage Hamas because too many people would die when you do that. It's not an option to do nothing because then this might happen again. What are the options? And the people who are uh, raising the call for a ceasefire or a a halt in um, operations are quite unable to say what would happen again, other than, well, it's really the Israelis' fault. The Israelis should uh, make peace, or they should uh, stop the occupation, or they should dissolve themselves, or they should um, uh, dissolve their state and agree to live as equal citizens in a, a new country. But, of course, we've seen, in the most graphic terms, why Israel and why Jews in the Middle East need the capacity to defend themselves. And by the way, how angry are Israelis that their capacity to defend themselves wasn't there? Um, uh, you know, out of um, all of the crimes of the Israeli government ever, the biggest one is being unable to defend the territory of southern Israel against yeah, an attack so. that was made without air, without air cover, without artillery, without uh, tanks, without any proper equipment. Anyway, that's a kind of aside for the moment. Dr. Hirsch, you, you described that really well. I want to ask one more question because we don't have that much time, but I, I'd like to get your thinking on this because it's something that I've come across increasingly. And you said you're like forcing yourself, you have to force yourself to get those facts out. But it seems like every fact is now being disputed. And the, people are saying to me, this is your truth. But there's another truth, and what makes your truth more valid? Can you help with that? Well, every fact, I mean, it's almost worse than than that even. Um, well, every fact is disputed, right? And you're saying that some people are kind of claiming that there's no such thing as fact, although I don't think they claim that about their own facts, right? Their own facts are facts. Your facts are narrative. And what that means is they're actually accusing you of lying. Right. They tell the truth. Your facts are just narrative and just your opinion. Um, but I think in a sense, it's even worse than that, because I think many, many people are discussing a situation that they genuinely don't understand at all. They haven't thought through to say, 
that Israel is committing genocide. And um, um, she clearly hadn't thought about the politics of that statement, about what it meant for the people who it talked about, and in particular, uh, what it meant for Israelis to be denounced as genocide, as genocidaire, as, as, as perpetrators of genocide. But, but my point really in answer to your question is that people imagine a conflict of good against evil of, um, a genocidal white, uh, Western Jews, uh, trying to, um, get their pound of flesh, trying to commit genocide, uh, trying to, you know, using its power over the media to hoodwink everybody, using its power over the United States and the, all the Western governments. People have this image in their minds of what is happening that is so far divorced from what is actually happening. And they have a story by which they understand it, which is so far divorced from the actual story of how this conflict came about that uh, uh, it's really difficult to talk about lies and truth because the image that people, the emotional narrative, the the narrative that constructs people's emotional responses are so divorced from, from any kind of reality that it becomes almost, you know, it becomes impossible to kind of discuss rationally. So what do we do? Well, uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's very difficult. You know what I do. Um, my focus is on universities and the way that academics are thinking and the way that academics are writing about the conflict and the Palestinians and the Israelis and the ways in which academics tend to position uh, Israel and Israelis at the centre of everything that's bad in the world in a similar way to, to which anti-Semites have in the past positioned Jews in the centre of everything that's bad in the world. And uh, we at the London Centre for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism are trying to do and to facilitate research. And research in this context means giving people time and space to write scholarly books and scholarly papers which can engage with that uh, uh, narrative that, that comes from the highest level, from the most intelligent intellectual people in in uh, in the planet who are teaching the young people uh, uh to think in their in that way and um who are creating opinion forms of the future so um what we're doing is incredibly ambitious it's it's to to you know create a community of scholarship and that requires a lot of money because it requires creating space and time for academics to do their work and one of the things that happens in a hostile environment is that normal avenues of research funding are not available to us because if we make an application for research funding and people look at what we want to do, they say, oh, no, 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 that's just uh, Israeli propaganda. And it's uh, and now they're saying this is a, a defense of genocide. I mean, how quickly did the, the zeitgeist move from apartheid to genocide, right? A minute ago. Uh, it was a kind of found, a, a really important truth about Israel that it was an apartheid state. Not anymore. Now it's a genocide state. But of course, apartheid and genocide are not the same thing. They're not really similar. So, but it doesn't matter because these words are not used in any kind of technical sense or in, in any sense to shed light. These words are used simply to 
show that Israel is very, very bad. And therefore, any of these words will do, right? Apartheid, genocide, Nazi, uh, colonial, any of those words will do because they all signify very, very bad. And if you look at the words that were used about Jews in the past, you will see that they have the same content, right? That Jews were, uh, you know, Christ killers or uh, bankers or bourgeois or Bolsheviks. And those were also, you know, they couldn't have been all of those things. And in fact, the Jews collectively can't be any of those things because Jewish human beings pursue their own interests and not a collective Jewish interest. But so, so it was meaningless other than its moral content. And his moral content was to say that uh, Christ killers and uh, capitalists and communists and imperialists and defenders of apartheid and people perpetrating genocide are bad. And therefore, Israel is bad. That's the really, I mean, it's kind of astonishing to say, but the most sophisticated scholars in our universities are operating at that level, or at least what they're doing is they're giving a kind of scholarly appearance or justification for people employing those words. But the employment of those words are doing a different job. This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Sobering what you say. Um, you obviously have your work cut out for you. You're doing it at an academic level, which is where it should be done. How easy is it to get from an academic level into mainstream society, your messages? Oh, well, I suspect that, that that's quite easy, actually. I suspect that, that there's a sense in which, um, if the academics stopped saying this anti-Semitic stuff and stopped writing anti-Semitic books and stopped teaching anti-Semitism and stopped justifying and legitimating anti-Semitic movements and positions, that would um, would have a really big effect pretty quickly. Um, because I think that, that, that what is unique about what we're doing is that it attacks um, the anti-Semitism at, at one of its kind of... Um, base heart one of its heart positions right that we're doing more than firefighting uh, um we're kind of attacking one of the causes now of course it doesn't all come from academia but uh in terms of uh creating the normal things that normal people think you know that good people believe um universities are really important um and uh, I'm sure it's similar in South Africa, but in Britain, you just have to listen to the mainstream highbrow um, news program on in the morning on Radio 4. And you can see in many, many ways how the way of thinking that is taught in universities becomes the kind of normal dominant ideology of good people in Britain. Um, I mean, I could give you any number of examples. Um, one of them, which is probably trivial, it seems trivial, is that yesterday there was an interview with um, the father of one of the hostages in uh, Israel uh, who's been held in Gaza, and it was he did quite a good interview and he was quite compelling. And at the end of the interview, uh, the presenter said, thanks very much for that. 
and we will be talking to a Palestinian civilian after the news. Right? Just a kind of really ordinary common sense notion that the testimony of a civilian must be balanced <laughs> with the testimony of another civilian. And actually, what I think is happening in the, the way that the that certainly Radio 4 is telling uh, the story is that the story of the war becomes almost impossible to understand because it is dissolved into little more than uh, endless uh, stories of individual human beings who are suffering terribly. And if war is only told as the story of many, many human beings who are suffering terribly, it cannot be understood. Like, I mean, imagine if the Second World War was told only uh, by, you know, the, the terrible plight of, of uh, Poitre in, in uh, Warsaw, who's had his house bombed out, and the terrible plight of um, women in, in Germany who were attacked and raped by, by the Russian advance, and the terrible plight of uh, people in London in the Blitz, and the terrible plight of, of, of Dresden and Two million people died at Stalingrad and many, you know, hundred, uh, uh, nearly a million people murdered at Auschwitz and the plight of the Greek resistance being tortured. And, you know, if that was the story of the Second World War, you would not possibly understand what the war was about and you wouldn't understand the story of the war. I mean, it's a very Brechtian approach, right? It's like, it's like the, the, the war, the only way of just the only justification for that is the assumption that the war itself does not matter that the war itself is a is the moral disgrace and every side in the war is equally morally disgraceful and that's why it can be narrated as nothing but a series of of horror of, of horror happening to people who don't deserve horror if, on the other hand, the Second World War was narrated as the rise of a uh, huge and influential totalitarian movement, which was based on the idea that the everything bad in the world was the responsibility of the Jews and the, the solution to the Jewish question was to kill the Jews, uh, then you would understand the war, you know, then you'd need to know the progress of the war, who's fighting and why and what component of their fighting is about that and what component of it is about self-defense and other things. And then you'd have to understand how the war was progressing. Why were boys being shot on the beaches uh, on D-Day? Was it just an, another awful horror that boys were, were suffering running up the beach? No, they were running up the beach for a reason. And it seems to me that um, um, you see a lot of a lot is made of context, right? If you say, look, you need to take October the 7th seriously. And actually, that's the main divide, right? The divide is between people who who have a real who, people who think that, that the 7th of October was significant. And then people who don't people who in practice or in words, trivialize it or deny it or celebrate it. Um, and if you think 7th of October was significant, then you need to understand that the Israelis want to prevent it happening again. And people then 
want to say, well, you need to look at the context. You need to look at the context of occupation and the context of uh, Israeli violence over, you know, century, uh, centuries, there you go, as a Freudian slip, but not my Freudian slip. Um, you need to look at the context. But then also part of the context is um, that, the, you know, there was pretty well a majority in Palestine in uh, the mid-late 90s to make peace to say we accept Israel exists, we don't want to slaughter the Jews, we don't want to smash it up, we don't want to fall victory, we're, we're prepared to, to live in a sovereign state alongside Israel. Most Palestinians either thought that or were pretty open to thinking that, and Hamas came along and said, no, that is a violation of the principles of the Islamic resistance movement, and what we need to do is kill the Jews. And um, if you want to look at context, you need to look at context. And the idea of killing the Jews is not new, right? So, so actually, the fact that Hamas's rhetoric mirrors um, Nazi rhetoric—it's not just random, right? Part of that story, uh, and you know, read Matthias Kunzel, read Jeff Herf. Part of that story is a very concrete, the result of very concrete campaigns from Berlin, from Nazi Germany, to um, impact the Middle East with its ideas. You know, the, the Mufti of Jerusalem was sitting in, the, in Berlin through the war, making um, Nazi propaganda in Arabic for the Middle East on radio. Now, again, this is not the only context, but it is a context that is just completely absent from the people who say that context is important. Um, so, uh, it, yes, let's look at the context because let's look at um, the occupation and let's look at Israeli efforts to negotiate an end to the occupation and let's look at what happened to those efforts and let's look uh, before that at, um, you know, we... Where, if you're what, unwinding the, the, the film of history, how far? How far do you want to unwind the film of history? This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherise Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Right, I have a question for you. When we look at those who are protesting, what percentage of those do you think are genuinely ignorant and caught up in a work movement and are just sloganizing? And how many do you think are actually anti-Semitic and understand what they're calling for? Yeah. Like, in a sense, I don't, it's not a question that I'm really very interested in because, because I don't care what is in somebody's heart when they say an anti-Semitic thing. I don't care if it's motivated by a, a conscious hatred of Jews or if it's just motivated by being stupid or foolish or unable to contextualize or unable to think for yourself or by going along with uh, things that kind of lie dormant in the culture, which you're not even aware of, or by being an academic who forgets that it's important to think about politics and context before you make, uh, uh, um, you know, grandiose claims about genocide. It's, it's not even a question that interests me. Um, and, I don't think there is a kind of pure, real, genuine anti-Semite who is motivated by a kind of conscious hatred of Jews on the one hand, and then a whole load of kind of uh, uh, innocent sort of fool, fools on the other. I don't care. I mean, we've seen anyone who's been involved in this, these discussions have seen 
many, many Jews who embrace and who push and who defend anti anti-Semitic politics. Right. I don't even want to know what's in their heart. I don't, I don't like, like, well, in a sense, I do. And it's quite interesting to ask, you know, how did this happen to Jewish people? Because, of course, um, it's much more palatable to live in a world where where anti-Semitism is a rational response to bad Jews, because then we could do something about it by being good and they wouldn't hate us. But anti-Semitism is not like that. It's irrational. It's it's irrational. It's irrational hatred, and it's um, picked up from many many fragments of older movements, and it's put back together again for reasons that that people want to put them back together again for. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think we need to just forget about the the kind of fantasy of you know. Well, I can see that somebody calls for the murder of the Jews, but are they really an anti-Semite? I mean, who cares, actually? Uh, it's a fantasy to imagine that anti-Semitism is a kind of personal sickness that affli- afflicts, you know, a certain percentage of the population. It's not. It's a, it's a social process. And, uh, it's, and, but look, bad people think that they are good, right? You know, anti-Semites believe themselves to be good people. And, and that's really important. And you can see that. You can look in their eyes. You can look at them speak. And they believe themselves to be good people. And they believe themselves to be protecting the world from, you know, over the centuries, one kind of Jewish menace or another. And the, the contemporary Jewish menace that they're uh, protecting the world from is uh, uh, Zionist, colonialist, imperialist, apartheid genocide, um, which, of course, Again, they flit all over the place because sometimes they say, no, no, it's not just Israel. You know, America is just the same and Britain, they're all, you know, they all do this, uh, imperialist Zionist, well, not Zionist, <laughs> genocide. Sometimes everybody's the same, but, but then you say, well, you know, what did you do when, um, the Americans and the Brits were attacking Fallujah? Where were you talking about dead children, um, with the assault on Mosul? Uh, what fuss did you make about the 1700 um, uh, innocent civilians who were killed as collateral damage in in um, Raqqa, right? And there and there's no fuss, and people didn't really think about it. They didn't. People believe that the Israelis must be so clever and so powerful and so cunning that if they wanted to, they could defeat Hamas without hurting anybody. It's almost Shakespearean, right? Shylock. They say to Shylock, yes, you can have your bond, you can have your pound of flesh, but you must not spill a single drop of blood, right? And they say to Israel today, yes, the law decrees that you can have your self-defense, but you must not hurt a single person um, who is being held hostage by the people against whom you are defending yourself. It's it's a kind of lunacy. It's a It's a really militant refusal to think things through. And people have a reason for not thinking things through. And the reason is that if they do, they will be pushed out of the community of the good. There was a lovely little uh, vignette. Um, somebody took some footage on, on, on their phone of one of the demonstrations in London. And there was a kind of standard sort of old fashioned anti-Zionist um, on the demonstration. Dr. Hirsch, we have to end it there. We have literally run out of time. But that was an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, 
And yeah, uh, good luck with the fight. You have a big fight. We we depending on you here. Thank you. Find us on uh, um, LondonAntisemitism.com, the London Centre for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism. Thank you very much. That was Dr. David Hirsch, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and co-founder of Engage, a campaign against the academic boycott of Israel. This is Jewish Board Talk with Sheree Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Um, yeah, we're ending a little bit early, but we'll play out with some music. In the meantime, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Craig and Makundi for putting the show together. Um, if there's anything you'd like to comment on, you're always welcome to send me an email on sharice.sajbd.org. Otherwise, until we meet again next week, I wish you all Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>